Part 1, Chapter 6, Section 1 of Some Do Not by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 1, Chapter 6, Section 1. Teachens lit a pipe beside the stile, having first meticulously cleaned out the bowl and the stem with a surgical needle, in his experience the best of all pipe cleaners, since, made of German silver, it is flexible, won't corrode, and is indestructible. He wiped off methodically with a great dock-leaf the glutinous brown products of burnt tobacco, the young woman, as he was aware, watching him from behind his back. As soon as he had restored the surgical needle to the notebook in which it lived and had put the notebook into its bulky pocket, Miss Warnop moved off down the path. It was only suited for Indian file, and had on the left hand a ten-foot untrimmed quicken hedge, the hawthorn blossoms just beginning to blacken at the edges, and small green haws to show. On the right the grass was above knee-high, and bowed to those that passed. The sun was exactly vertical. The chaffinches said, Pink, pink. The young woman had an agreeable back. This, Teachens thought, is England. A man and a maid walk through Kentish grass fields, the grass ripe for the scythe. The man honourable, clean, upright, the maid virtuous, clean, vigorous. He of good birth, she of birth quite as good, each filled with a too good breakfast that each could yet capably digest. Each come just from an admirably appointed establishment, a table surrounded by the best people, their promenade sanctioned, as it were, by the church, two clergy, the state, two government officials, by mothers, friends, old maids. Each knew the names of birds that piped and grasses that bowed. Chaffinch, greenfinch, yellow ammer, not, my dear, hammer, ammer from the middle high German for finch. Garden warbler, Dartford warbler, pied wagtail known as dishwasher, these charming local dialect names. Marguerites over the grass, stretching in an infinite white blaze. Grasses purple in a haze to the far distant hedgerow. Coltsfoot, wild white clover, Saint-Fouin, Italian ryegrass, all technical names that the best people must know, the best grass mixture for permanent pasture and the wilden loam. In the hedge, Our Lady's bed straw, dead nettle, bachelor's button, but in Sussex they call it ragged robin, my dear. So interesting, cowslip, pagel, you know, from old French pasque, meaning Easter. Burr, burdock, farmer that thy wife might thrive, but not burr and burdock wife. Violet leaves, the flowers, of course, over. Black bryony, wild clematis. Later it's old man's beard, purple loose strife, that our young maids long purples call, and literal shepherds give a grosser name, so racy of the soil. Walk then through the fields, gallant youth and fair maid, minds cluttered up with all these useless anodynes for thought, quotation, imbecile epithets. Dead silent, unable to talk, from too good breakfast to probably extremely bad lunch. The young woman, so the young man is duly warned, to prepare it, pink India rubber, half-cooked cold beef, no doubt, tepid potatoes, water in the bottom of willow pattern dish, no, not genuine willow pattern, of course, Mr. Teachens. Overgrown lettuce with wood vinegar to make the mouth scream with pain, pickles, 
also preserved in wood vinegar, two bottles of public house beer that on opening squirts to the wall, a glass of invalid port for the gentleman, and the jaws hardly able to open after the too enormous breakfast at 10.15. Midday now. God's England, Hitchens exclaimed to himself in high good humour, land of hope and glory. F natural descending to tonic C major, chord of 6-4 suspension over dominant 7th to common chord of C major. All absolutely correct. Double basses, cellos, all violins, all woodwind, all brass, full grand organ, all stops, special vox humana and key bugle effect. Across the counties came the sound of bugles that his father knew. Pipe exactly right. It must be pipe of Englishmen of good birth, ditto tobacco. Attractive young woman's back. English midday, midsummer. Best climate in the world. No day on which man may not go abroad. Teachens paused and aimed with his hazel stick an immense blow at a tall spike of yellow mullein with its undecided furry glaucous leaves and its undecided buttony unripe lemon-coloured flower. The structure collapsed gracefully like a woman killed among crinolines. Now I'm a bloody murderer, Teachens said, not gory, green-stained with vital fluid of innocent plant, and by God not a woman in the country who won't let you rape her after an hour's acquaintance. He slew two more mullains and a sow thistle, a shadow but not from the sun. A gloom lay across the sixty acres of purple grass bloom and marguerites, white like petticoats of lace over the grass. By God, he said, church, state, army, his majesty's ministry, his majesty's opposition, his majesty's city man, all the governing class, all rotten. Thank God we've got a navy. But perhaps that's rotten too, who knows? Britannia needs no bulwarks. Then thank God for the upright young man and the virtuous maiden in the summer fields. He, Tory of the Tories, as he should be, she, suffragette of the militants, militant here in earth, as she should be, as she should be, in the early decades of the twentieth century, however else can a woman keep clean and wholesome? Ranting from platforms, splendid for the lungs, bashing in policemen's helmets. No, it's I do that, my part, I think, miss. Carrying heavy banners in twenty-mile processions through streets of Sodom. All splendid. I bet she's virtuous. But you don't have to bet. It isn't done on certainties. You can tell it in the eye. Nice eyes. Attractive back virginal cockiness. Yes, better occupation for mothers of empire than attending on lewd husbands year in, year out, till you're as hysterical as a female cat on heat. You could see it in her, that woman. You can see it in most of them. Thank God then for the Tory, upright young married man and the suffragette kid, backbone of England. He killed another flower. But by God, we're both under a cloud. Both. That kid and I. And General Lord Edward Campion, Lady Claudine Sandbach and the Honourable Paul MP suspended to spread the tale. And forty toothless fogies in the club to spread it and no end visiting books yawning to have your names cut out of them, my boy. My dear boy, I so regret your father's oldest friend. By Jove, the pistachio nut of that galantine repeating breakfast gone wrong, gloomy reflections. Thought I could stand anything, digestion of an ostrich, but no. 
gloomy reflections. I'm hysterical like that large-eyed whore. For same reason. Wrong diet and wrong life. Diet meant for partridge shooters over the turnips consumed by the sedentary. England, the land of pills. Das Pillenland, the Germans call us, very properly. And damn it, outdoor diet. Boiled mutton, turnips, sedentary life. And forced up against the filthiness of the world, your nose in it all day long. Why, hang it, I'm as badly off as she. Sylvia's as bad as Dusherman. I'd never have thought that. No wonder meats turned to uric acid. Prime cause of neurasthenia. What a beastly muddle. Poor McMaster. He's finished, poor devil. He'd better have ogled this kid. He could have sung Highland Mary a better tune than This is the End of Every Man's Desire. You can cut it on his tombstone. You can write it on his card that a young man tacked on to a Paolo post pre raphaelite prostitute. He stopped suddenly in his walk. It had occurred to him that he ought not to be walking with this girl. But damn it all, he said to himself, she makes a good screen for Sylvia. Who cares? She must chance it. She probably struck off all their beastly visiting lists already as a suffragette. Miss Wannop, a cricket pitch or so ahead of him, hopped over a stile, left foot on the step, right on the top bar, a touch of the left on the other step, and down onto the white drifted dust of a road they no doubt had to cross. She stood waiting, her back still to him. Her nimble footwork, her attractive back, seemed to him now infinitely pathetic. To let scandal attach to her was like cutting the wings of a goldfinch. The bright creature, yellow, white, golden and delicate, that in the sunlight makes a haze with its wings beside this thistle-tops. No, damn it, it was worse. It was worse than putting out, as the bird-fancier does, the eyes of a chaffinch, infinitely pathetic. Above the stile, in an elm, a chaffinch said, Pink, pink. The imbecile's sound filled him with rage. He said to the bird, Damn your eyes, have them put out then. The beastly bird that made the odious noise when it had its eyes put out at least squealed like any other skylark or tom-tit. Damn all birds, field naturalists, botanists. In the same way, he addressed the back of Miss Wannop. Damn your eyes, have your chastity impugned them? What do you speak to strange men in public for? You know you can't do it in this country. If it were a decent straight land like Ireland, where people cut each other's throats for clean issues, papist versus protestant, well, you could. You could walk through Ireland from east to west and speak to every man you met. Rich and rare were the gems she wore. To every man you met, as long as it wasn't an Englishman of good birth, that would deflower you. He was scrambling clumsily over the stile. Well, be deflowered, then. Lose your infantile reputation. You've spoken to strange pitch. You've defiled, with the benefit of clergy, army, cabinet, administration, opposition, mothers and old maids of England. They'd all tell you you can't talk to a strange man in the sunlight, on the links, without becoming a screen for some Sylvia or other. Then be a screen for Sylvia. Get struck off the visiting books. The deeper you're implicated, the more bloody villain I am. I'd like the whole lot to see us here. That would settle it. Nevertheless, when at the roadside he stood level with Miss Wannop, who did not look at him, and saw the white road running to right and left with no stile opposite, he said gruffly to her, Where's the next stile? I hate walking on roads. She pointed with her chin along the opposite hedgerow. Fifty yards, she said. Come along, he exclaimed, and set off at a trot almost. 
It had come into his head that it would be just the beastly sort of thing that would happen if a car with General Campion and Lady Claudine and Paul Sandbark all aboard should come along that blinding stretch of road, or one alone, perhaps the general driving, the dog-cart he affected. He said to himself, By God, if they cut this girl, I'd break their backs over my knee. And he hastened. Just the beastly thing that would happen. The road probably led straight in at the front door of Mountby. Miss Wannop trotted along a little in his rear. She thought him the most extraordinary man, as mad as he was odious. Sane people, if they're going to hurry, but why hurry? Do it in the shade of field hedgerows, not in the white blaze of county council roads. Well, he could go ahead. In the next field she was going to have it out with him. She didn't intend to be hot with running. Let him be, his hateful but certainly noticeable eyes protruding at her like a lobster's, but she cool and denunciatory in her pretty blouse. There was a dog-cart coming behind them. Suddenly it came into her head. That fool had been lying when he had said that the police meant to let them alone, lying over the breakfast table. The dog-cart contained the police, after them. She didn't waste time looking round. She wasn't a fool like Atlanta in the egg race. She picked up her heels and sprinted. She beat him by a yard and a half to the kissing gate, white in the hedge, panicked, breathing hard. He panted into it after her. The fool hadn't the sense to let her through first. They were jammed in together, face to face, panting. An occasion on which sweethearts kiss in Kent, the gate being made in three, the inner flange of the V moving on hinges. It stops cattle getting through, but this great lout of a Yorkshireman didn't know, trying to push through like a mad bullock. Now they were caught, three weeks in Wandsworth jail. Oh, hang! The voice of Mrs. Wannop, of course, it was only mother. Twenty feet on high or so behind the kicking mare, with a good round face like a peony, said, Ah, you can jam my val in the gate and hold her, but she gave you seven yards in twenty and beat you to the gate. That was her father's ambition. She thought of them as children running races. She beamed down, round-faced and simple, on teachings from behind the driver, who had a black slouch hat and the grey beard of St. Peter. My dear boy, she said, my dear boy, it's such a satisfaction to have you under my roof. The black horse reared on end, the patriarch sawing at its mouth. Mrs. Wannop said unconcernedly, Stephen, Joel, I haven't done talking. Teachens was gazing enragedly at the lower part of the horse's sweat-smeared stomach. You soon will have, he said, with the girth in that state, your neck will be broken. Oh, I don't think so, Mrs. Wannop said. Joel only bought the turnout yesterday. Teachens addressed the driver with some ferocity. Here, get down, you, he said. He held himself the head of the horse whose nostrils were wide with emotion. It rubbed its forehead almost immediately against his chest. He said, yes, yes, there, there. Its limbs lost their tautness. The aged driver scrambled down from the high seat, trying to come down at first forward and then backwards. Teachens fired indignant orders at him. Lead the horse into the shade of that tree. Don't touch his bit, his mouth sore. Where did you get this job lot? Ashford Market, thirty pounds? It's worth more. But blast you, don't you see you've got a thirteen hands pony harness for sixteen and a half hands horse? Let the bit out. Three holes, it's cutting the animal's tongue in half. This animal's a rig. Do you know what a rig is? If you give it corn for a fortnight, it'll kick you and the cart and the stable to pieces in five minutes one day. 
he led the conveyance, Mrs. Wannup, triumphantly complacent and all, into a patch of shade beneath elms. Loosen that bit, confound you, he said to the driver. Ah, you're afraid. He loosened the bit himself, covering his fingers with greasy harnish polish, which he hated. Then he said, Can you hold his head, or are you afraid of that too? You deserve to have him bite your hands off. He addressed Miss Wannup. Can you? She said, No, I'm afraid of horses. I can drive any sort of car, but I'm afraid of horses. He said, Very proper. He stood back and looked at the horse. It had dropped its head and lifted its near hind foot, resting the toe on the ground, an attitude of relaxation. You'll stand now, he said. He undid the girth, bending down uncomfortably, perspiring and greasy. The girth strap parted in his hand. It's true, Mrs. Wannup said. I'd have been dead in three minutes if you hadn't seen that. The cart would have gone over backwards. Teachens took out a large, complicated, horn-handled knife like a schoolboy's. He selected a punch and pulled it open. He said to the driver, Have you got any cobbler's thread? Any string? Any copper wire? A rabbit wire now? Come, you've got a rabbit wire or you're not a handyman. The driver moved his slouch hat circularly in negation. This seemed to be quality who summons you for poaching if you own to possessing rabbit wires. Teachens laid the girth along the shaft and punched into it with his punch. Woman's work, he said to Mrs. Wannup, but it'll take you home and last you six months as well. But I'll sell this whole lot for you tomorrow. Mrs. Wannup sighed. I suppose it'll fetch a ten-pound note. She said, I ought to have gone to market myself. No, Teachens answered. I'll get you fifty for it or I'm no Yorkshireman. This fellow hasn't been swindling you. He's got you deuced good value for money, but he doesn't know what's suited for ladies. A white pony and a basketwork chaise is what you want. Oh, I like a bit of spirit, Mrs. Wannup said. Of course you do, Teachens answered, but this turnout's too much. He sighed a little and took out his surgical needle. I'm going to hold this band together with this, he said. It's so pliant it'll make two stitches and hold forever. But the handyman was beside him, holding out the contents of his pockets. A greasy leather pouch, a ball of beeswax, a knife, a pipe, a bit of cheese and a pale rabbit wire. He had made up his mind that this quality was benevolent and he made offering of all his possessions. Titchin said, ah, and then, while he unknotted the wire, well, listen, you bought this turnout of a higgler at the back door of the leg of Martin Inn. Saracen's Ed, the driver muttered. You got it for thirty pounds because the eagler wanted money bad. I know, and dirt cheap, but a rig isn't everybody's driving. All right for a vet or a horse coper, like the cart that's too tall. But you did damn well, only you're not what you were, are you, at thirty? The horse looked to be a devil and the cart so high you couldn't get out once you were in, and you kept it in the sun for two hours waiting for your mistress. There were a bit of loath alongside stable wall, the driver muttered. Well, he didn't like waiting, Teachin said placably. You can be thankful your old neck's not broken. Do this band up one hole less for the bit I've taken in. He prepared to climb into the driver's seat, but Mrs. Wannup was there before him at an improbable altitude on the sloping watch-box with strapped cushions. Oh, no, you don't, she said. No one drives me and my horse but me or my coachman when I'm about. Not even you, dear boy. I'll come with you then, Teachin said. Oh, no, you don't, she answered. No one's next to be broken in this conveyance but mine and Joel's, she added, 
Perhaps tonight, if I'm satisfied, the horse is fit to drive. Miss Wannup suddenly exclaimed, Oh no, mother! But the handyman having climbed in, Mrs Wannup flirted her whip and started the horse. She pulled up at once and leaned over to Teachens. What a life for that poor woman, she said. We must all do what we can for her. She could have her husband put in a lunatic asylum tomorrow. It's sheer self-sacrifice that she doesn't. The horse went off at a gentle, regular trot. End of part one, chapter six, section one.